Hey guys, LD here with a short trigger warning. This episode contains talk of alcoholism and alcohol use. If this is triggering to you, we completely understand. We hope that you'll come back next week for episode two of Grand Parsons. We love you all. Enjoy the episode. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, Eldie, along with me for the ride for the first time this year is my big brother, TJ2, the deuce. I can't, is he drinking at this point? It sounds like it. I don't know, or is he, but I can't, uh, or is he playing tug of war? Coffee! Oh dear. Uh, drinking. <laughs> Drink, yep. I think he's drinking. He's drinking coffee. It is yeah. six o'clock at night when we're recording this, guys. What yeah. are you doing with your life, Travis? Sweet caffeinated nectar of the gods. Nice. Well, happy yeah. new year. Happy new year. So as it turns out, the last episode we did was our in memoriam year in thing. Uh-huh. And I mentioned at the time that I didn't feel well, and you could probably listen to me until I sounded like crap. Hey, as it turns out, I had the flu. That's yeah. Awesome. For, the first time, for the first time since I was five. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recommend it. I didn't miss eh. it. Eh. No, it's not fun. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. And the oh, yeah. the one member of this podcast that probably isn't sick right now is my husband. Happy New Year to Mr. Will the Thrill. Yes, and to that I say greetings and salutations. Are you I'm drinking something? Water. Ooh. Because I gotta go no. running after this. Oh. It's boring. Will's like doing stuff. Like I'm not he's, in favor of that. He's no. doing he's, stuff. He's running a marathon. Right. Well, he's running a, a half yeah. marathon. Yeah. No, I can't. That's I can it. look. I'll cheer you on, but I'm not gonna like. I appreciate that. Do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a no for me, dog. Sorry. Yeah. So, yeah. I appreciate it, nonetheless. Yeah. Well. Like we said, this is our first episode back. Thank you guys for letting us take a week off. It was nice. I did nothing. I accomplished nothing. What about you guys? That's pretty much that's pretty much it. Yeah. 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 Can't say it's much different. Yeah, well unfortunately we come back and we come bearing three different really sad deaths. I guess I will go ahead and start and get where every host is gonna take a death. So I'm gonna announce the death of Glennis Johns, who I think it's appropriate that I take her because you guys probably know her best as Winifred Banks in Mary Poppins. She was the suffragette and she had a fabulous song, but she was actually born October 5th, 1923. And she passed away on January 4th of this year. So she was a hundred. Wow. It sucks for me because she was a, not just a Broadway person. She was also a, an East End, West End girl. She would do different theater in London, but then she also did Broadway and she did Hollywood. She kind of did everything. She did actually win a Tony because she was in the original Broadway cast of A Little Night Music, which is written by someone that we've talked about before on this podcast. We did an entire series on him, which is Stephen Sondheim. And it has been told that the song Send in the Clowns was written for her specifically. Like wow. Steve, Stephen Sondheim had her voice in mind when he wrote that song. So, I mean, I feel like if Stephen Sondheim is writing a song with you in mind, you've done pretty good. Yeah, I would say so. I, I would say so, yes. And actually, with the death of Olivia de Havilland in 2020, Johns became the oldest living Academy Award nominee in any category. 
Now, with the death of Betty White, she became the oldest living Disney legend. So, I mean, damn. And then she passed away from natural causes. So she lived an incredible life. She's definitely podcast eligible, but definitely podcast worthy. Not that I'm making any announcements, but she had an incredible career. Like her first thing that she ever did was called South Riding, and it was in 1938. So, wow. She will be missed, and she leaves behind an incredible legacy. So we will miss Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Sure, that way. Yeah. But I mean, like, the big thing that she's known for is Mary Poppins. I think everybody that was ever a kid knows what Mary Poppins is and remembers her in that role. So who else uh, Who else do we have? Because I know we have two others. Yeah, we had a death from January the 9th, and I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing the, his name correctly. His last name is spelled K-O-T-T-A-K. Kodak or K- Kodak? Kodak? James Kodak, maybe. Maybe. Anyway, he was an American drummer. Over the course of his career, he played with Montrose, with Kingdom Come, with Warrant, Adio briefly, and then he was a member of the Scorpions for about 20 years. And I didn't know a whole lot about him, but apparently at one point, he was married to Athena Bass, who was Tommy Lee's younger sister. Oh, wow. And I think they had a son together. Anyway, he, he passed away in... Louisville, Kentucky. He was only 61. I saw a couple of causes of death listed, so I'm not going to get into all that because I don't know which one's accurate. But anyway, very sad to see that. Yeah. Will, you also have someone as well. Yes, I do. That would be Anthony Michael Clarkin. He was actually the guitar player best known for the band Magnum, which I believe was around for a good chunk of the 70s and into the 90s, if I'm not mistaken. Of course, Anthony was born in England. He was born in Birmingham specifically. He did play for Magnum and also Hard Rain. I know the band had on and off years, and they actually got back together in around 2001 and would tour and play shows until 2023. Unfortunately, on January 9th, Clarkson had died in his home. He was 77 years old. And just some others just to catch you up. We had Chris Kerr. From Embryo, passed away on January the 2nd at age 76. He passed COVID-19. We had David Soule, American actor and singer. passed at the age of 80 on the 4th. It was Hutch. I'm sorry? That was Hutch. From Starsky and Hutch? Yeah, David Soule. He was was Hutch. Yeah, he passed away of COPD. And he Um, did, but he did have one or two hits. The one you mentioned, I think, was the biggest, but... Yeah. Well, and then we had Gene Deere, who was a blues guitarist and singer, passed away at the age of 59 on the 5th. Uh, Cause of death has not been released. Del Palmer, who was a bassist and audio engineer, bass guitarist, sorry, and audio engineer, passed away at the age of 71 on the 5th, also due to undisclosed causes. I'm going to get this name wrong. I think it's Ieso, uh, Ieso. It's I-A-S-O-S, which is a new aged musician at the age of 77, also undisclosed. Tony actually passed away due to a spinal condition, and James passed away due to cardiac arrest. Yeah, Tony was suffering that for some time, from what I understand. Yeah, so that's just kind of catching you guys up on who we might have missed in the, the recent days that we have been out of the loop. Now, with that business out of the way, I think right now would be a great time to take our first sponsor break, and we will be right back. And I will tell you what we're doing. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out. 
because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And we are back. Hi, guys. All right. Nice. Did Did you miss me? Absolutely. So here's the thing. It's been a very long time since you took me on series. Oh my God, because, yes uh, it is. I occupied about six months of 2023 with Waylon Jennings, and then Will did a series. And then we, we had in December, frankly, we know a lot of you guys are you're busy with family and with you know, Christmas and other holidays and New Year's, and there's a lot going on for everybody and us included. So we didn't have any a series say but we had you know we had the that ridiculous time machine thing that i did we had an episode of uh i think um admin thea is not dead yet report and the the year-end show and maybe a slap nuts was tossed in there so but we're ready to start anew as the new year begins with a new series featuring ld for the Yay. first time since steven sondheim Yes. It's been a while. I think <laughs> since last April or May. It has been a while. And actually, this is what our, I, you know, it's been two years since we did our draft, or a year, year and a half, whatever. This was actually a suggestion by one of our winners during the last draft. And okay. I'm going to have to go back and listen to who it was that actually suggested this because they... We held a contest. They won the contest. I cannot remember who told me. I'm so sorry. I will go back and I will listen to our draft from like the last decade and find out who it is. But this is your special request, which is Graham Parsons, which, by the way, we barely get into Graham this episode. So it's going to be a fun little ride. Okay. Yeah. He's actually oddly come up in our last two series. Has he not? I believe I I know he came up in the Wayland series. 
Uh, did he come up in the Dwayne Allman series? Because I cannot remember. I do believe he did. Yes, he did. Well, good. Well, there's a reason for that. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you guys my two sources, my two main sources, were Ben Fong Torres' Hickory Wind, A Life and Time of Graham Parsons, and 20,000 Roads by David N. Meyer, The Ballad of Graham Parsons, and his Cosmic American Music. Those are the two main books that I drew from. Watched several very small documentaries. And the thing is, he he passed when he was 26. So right. there's not a whole lot out there. There, I believe, are five books about Graham and not a lot of like full length documentaries. So I have kind of parceled together as much as I could, but he is, you know, the rest of his story and, is going to be bonkers, but his, his beginnings are even more bonkers. Well, yeah, you're right. He lived a very short life. Now, obviously something that happened in the immediate aftermath of his passing is fascinating enough. It inspired an entire motion picture and reams of stories and knockoffs and a video that I, I sent you guys a music video. I sent you guys a link to a couple of days ago, but to have only lived a short life, a, the stories are, are going to be you know, preposterously slap nutish. And then the other thing is the swath of influence that this dude had in the very limited time that he had. I mean, his life was short, but his career is, I mean, it's a blip on the radar, but, I mean, as I'm sure you're going to get into this, I mean, this influenced pretty much everybody he touched. We're talking some of the biggest names in rock and roll and country, both. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, this is going to, this is one I've, I've actually really been looking forward to. Well, excellent. Well, let's dive in to Graham Barsons. All right. So, I'm, of course, going to start with his birth because that's where you got to start. But then I'm going to rock it all the way back because his parental lineage is bananas. So he was I'm excited because this is a name that comes up all the time and I am going in pleasantly as a blank slate here. I, I'm as looking as did I. Yeah. I went in completely blind and every page that I was reading was like, oh, my God, this is what? OK, well, excellent. Let's get started. He was born Ingram Cecil Connor III on November 5th. 1946. So he was the grandson of John Snively, who owned roughly one third of every citrus field in Florida, and the son of Coon Dog Connor. His father's real name was also, if you can't tell, Cecil, since his name is Ingram Cecil Connor III, and that's where he got Graham from, who was a major in the Air Force who owned a box manufacturing factory in Waycross, Georgia. All right, so Pauline Wilkes remembers her brother, who is the second as an extremely popular boy we're jumping all the way back i'm not gonna <laughs> just go straight to graham because his parents are great he was a good looking boy all of his life my friends would come over just to be with him although Cecil dated often he had no great love in high school already he had manifested the same quality of relaxed separateness that would mark his son he grew to be a manly affable and charming man and uh basically socially at ease. Like he could fit into any situation. He was just charming. Like you would meet him and be just open. And that's that's a big through line with him. Uh, at Columbia, he became a student leader and the alpha of his social pack, pulling out his ever-present ukulele at parties and taking it on dates, which is, I don't know why that is so funny to me, but all I can think about is the push scene from the Barbie movie where Ken is singing, I want to push you around. I don't know why. That's where I went to. My brother has no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> nope, sure don't. <laughs> In school, he devoted himself to ROTC, which is the Reserve Officers Training Corps, to ensure that he would join 
the service as an officer because it was the officers who became pilots. When he graduated, he and Van Shepard, which is one of his friends, set off for Alabama Polytechnic Institute in Auburn, which was established back in 1856 and made co-ed in 1892. The Polytechnic is better known by the name it took back in 1961. Does anybody know what that is? In 1961? I do not. Well, the name that it took. Of which now? Of the Polytechnic School. Come on, guys. No. Auburn. Auburn? Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And Shepard and uh, Cecil had studied aeronautic engineering and were both officers in ROTC. The family said he graduated in 1939, but the school disagrees. Uh, he attended Alabama Polytechnic, but no record actually exists that says he left with a degree. Now, so okay, so that's interesting. So, Al so Alabama Polytechnic Institute became Auburn. Yes, that's interesting. Okay, I, for some reason, I assumed Auburn would have been more of an A and M type of a school. Yeah, than a Polytechnic. It would have seemed more like. Yeah, more like Texas A&M, like Clemson, that were more agriculture and military. I thought that's what I, that was their history, but I obviously know nothing. <laughs> and that's why I'm here to teach you about the history of colleges. This is no longer the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast. We're switching to Names of Old Colleges pod. So anyway, getting back on track. When he was done with college, he and his best friend, Van Shepard's paths diverged. After joining the Army Air Corps together... He stayed in the Army while Van Shepard opted for the Flying Tigers. He would end up in the Pacific Theater, and Van Shepard would fly over the hump from Indiana to China over the Himalayas. Now, he took his aviation training Kelly Field in Texas. During a training, he drove around Kelly Field in a red convertible that he always wanted. He saved up for this thing, got it. He loved it. On May 11th, 1940, he graduated flight school and was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Army Air Corps. His mother was the one that got to pin his flying wings onto his chest, which I think is really sweet. He remained at Kelly Field until 1941 when he was transferred to Wheeler Field. Does anybody know where Wheeler Field is? Just out of curiosity. I do not. Nope. Well, that would be Pearl Harbor. Oh. Oh, wow. Okay. In 1941. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So there, he did not live like an ordinary officer. His life aligned more closely with sort of a pleasure dome, I guess. <laughs> he rented a house on Diamond Head, acquired another red convertible, and he was tall, he was handsome, he was social, he was well-to-do, and he was also a pilot, which meant at the time he was one of the coolest, most badass dudes that you could possibly meet. He didn't live like second lieutenant. He kind of lived like a rock star. <laughs> Plus, he had his ukulele. So, I mean, he's just winning everything, dude. Now, really? of course, Oof. that came to a, 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 a grinding halt when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor on the morning Thanks. of December 7th. Personal fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. I previously worked for Admiral Kimmel's grandson. Admiral Kimmel? Yeah. From Pearl Harbor. Okay. Yeah, I know that we were bombed. And I have seen the really shitty Michael Bay movie. And that is... About the extent, I've seen a couple of documentaries, but I don't know a lot of the key players. So who is okay. this? Who? Admiral Kimmel? Yeah. He had, I think he was the commanding officer of Pearl Harbor, I believe. See, that's awesome. Quick insertion here that technically Kimmel was a four-star admiral. He was the commander-in-chief of the entire United States Pacific Fleet, not just the oh my goodness. not just the, the Pearl Harbor base. So Okay, so he was pretty important. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And I totally knew that. I didn't look it up. Yeah. I think you're lying. <laughs> yeah. Now, 
he he was asleep and he woke up to the explosions and he could see the Japanese planes flying over Pearl from his house. So he jumped in his convertible and raced to Wheeler Field. When he got there, the base was in shambles. Bomb craters littered the runway. The planes were burning on the ground and there were a few hangars that were still standing that moments later would be in ruins. There was nothing that he could do. Like there was literally nothing. He was helpless. After the war, he told a co-worker, I didn't even get up to my plane to get it cranked up, but I made up for it later on. And I'm going to tell you, yeah, he did. Now, if in civilian life, he was sometimes regarded as a hard-drinking lagger with an overdeveloped gift or indulgence, during the war, there was no question that his sense of duty or adventure existed. Like, the fact is, he was a fantastic soldier, by all accounts. Now, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to follow it up with something. Me and TJ know we're Southern. The name Coon is a vile, hateful, racist It's an name. epithet, yes. It's yes. a racial yes. slur. Yes. Yeah, it is a slur. I, I, a tremendously ugly one, correct. Yes, yes. And we do not condone that. Now, there's no, there's no evidence that this nickname derived from that slur. So when I say that, I am not saying it because it is a slur. I am saying it because that was his nickname. And he got it a different way. But he was a well-bred, civilized Southerner, and no one remembers ever using that kind of language. But he loved to raccoon hunt. And you'll see that later. He actually takes Graham out to go raccoon hunting. So if you go hunt raccoons, what do you have to have? A dog? Yep. No, a gun? A coon dog. <laughs> coon dogs. Yep. Yep. There are two other ways of hunting raccoons. Neither could exist without the other one, which is dogs. One variant of dog tracks the scent of a raccoon, finds the beast, chases it through the woods, and if the raccoon out, outruns them, if it doesn't turn and fight, chases it up a tree. When the hunter catches up to the dogs, they can, which, you know, can take a while, they shoot the raccoon down so the dog can rip it to shreds. Another huh. method is more amiable. The hunters sent their dogs out to find a raccoon somewhere in the summer night and sit around a fire drinking as they listen as their dogs cut through the darkness. An experienced dog handler can tell when his his uh, dog is on the scent because when it's chasing, when it gets to the chase and it's treed a raccoon, it'll lie down and fall asleep. Hmm. Don finds the dog slumped in front of the tree and then the hunter can take it from there. Now... It's probably from those hounds that Coon Dog got his name. He became Coon Dog in New Guinea and never told anybody why. Raccoons, however, can be some mean son of a bitches when you bring no a fight their way. Yeah, they can. And they think that's yeah. how he got, just because raccoons are kosher if you leave them alone, but if you set on them, they can be complete dicks. Yeah. Well, raccoons and possums both look really cute. And, and for the most part... You don't bother them, they won't bother you. And possums in particular are actually very helpful because I think they eat ticks and they're it's in, they're incapable of carrying rabies and you know they 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 scavenge and stuff. I mean, you actually kind of want them around, but you piss one of those, you piss raccoons or possums off. Woo hoo! Let me tell you, buddy, or get one scared. They're, yeah. They can get. If you've never seen a pissed off possum, it's quite a thing. Actually, mom and dad raised possums. Do you remember that? This is this is my southern showing. <laughs> there dad, was a couple. I, I remember they had a couple or something. Yeah, we had I think six at one point, and mom was feeding a family of raccoons. Recently, she named it Charlotte, and then we had Pinky the possum. But 
you just fed them. You didn't try to pet them. You just were like making sure that they got food because we live in a very small town. There's traffic really close by. Not a whole lot that you can like scavenge for, but the possums, if you get too close to them, they'll hiss like cats, like angry cats. They just, and it's adorable. They, they hiss. But they've got they'll, sharp they'll, teeth. They'll quote, get big. You know, they'll kind of spread their arms out and they're, they're, yeah, their teeth are like razors. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to piss either of them off. Yeah. But like I said, you leave them, you don't bother them. They're not going to bother you pretty much, but. Yeah. Well, true to his name, he shot down numerous Japanese pilots over the Pacific Ocean in World War II. And he also bombed them when they were on the ground. That's the thing. He was incredible at his job. However, he also consumed vast quantities of whiskey during this time. Well, I mean. He was a flying ace, a genuine war hero, and certifiable alcoholic. Like, he, the drink was how he coped. And get that, he had PTSD. Like, and that's completely understandable. Um, after two years of aerial combat, Kuhn sailed from New Guinea to Australia on a hospital ship. He was treated for malaria, and that actually sent him back home under, you know, good terms back in 1944. The amount of flights that he embarked on, the official number of kills that he made, and the date and routes of the rotations back to the States vanished on July 12th, 1973, when the Defense Department's World War II archives, which were set up in East St. Louis, went up in flames. So we've, we'll never know how much he did, but through secondhand stories and what he told, like he had an incredibly impressive run when he was in there. He was bred to be military. Him and his brother both attended, his brother Tom, that's his brother's name, and his sister's name is Pauline, attended their father's high school in Columbia, which was called the Columbia Military Academy in Columbia, Tennessee. His folks were native to Tennessee, and both his father was born in, his father was born in Mount Pleasant in 1887, and his mom in Columbia in 1889, and both would sadly outlive their son by more than a generation. And how, how funny, you, you said there's... One was from Columbia and one was from Mount Pleasant. Yeah, because those both, are both, both places. Of which are, both of which are South Carolina town names. It just, oh, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, we've talked about the father. Two takeaways. Great guy. Uh, very charismatic. Very charming. Awesome. Incredible soldier. Okay. Those are the things that you kind of need to lock away in your head. Let's talk about his mom. Avis. Avis? <laughs> Avis. Okay. Uh, she was a Snively, and to be a Snively, which, by the way, sounds like a villain, not a villain. Sounds like a villain name, like Snively. Was there a villain in the cartoons? Snively Whiplash. Yeah. Snively. Okay, this is Snively. S-N-I-V-E-L-Y. Snively. There's a Snively Whiplash. Yeah, this but... is this is S-N-I-V-E-L-Y, correct? Snively? Yeah. Never heard of that one, but yeah, they were all powerful in Winter Haven, Central Florida. That's where the money grew literally on trees for them. Orange trees. You see what I did there? Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> now he grew a, a, a massive number of those trees, but while the family was thriving in one sense on the sale of wholesome food products, too many of them actually were, you know, I'm trying to figure out the most gentlest way to say this. Most of them were kind of bred to be alcoholics as well it was just like a thing that happened to both sides of this family the alcoholism and i only bring this up and kind of like needle in this point because it becomes a big point of contention later on it, it, it's a big big point now it's been reported that their net worth was about 
How much would you guess? Tasha, we're talking start, about yeah. this this far back. It's hard to hard to guess. Just throw out a number that you think they were worth twenty five million dollars. All right, Will. Uh, uh, I'm gonna say forty million dollars. My brother wins this with oh twenty five. They hey. actually were worth thirty million dollars. Now I did back then. Oh Lord, wow! Bet the conversion on that is in, is insane. And it's funny because I don't even think the conversion, like the inflation calculator, the conversion calculator goes back that far. I think it starts it in like, 20, like 1923. Now, the first one to hit the shores was a gentleman named Johann Jacob who fled Switzerland for Lancaster, Pennsylvania in 1714. The genealogical records in Polk County, Florida, which was the home of the Snively family, the seat of Winter Haven, recorded that he came to this country in order to escape religious, religious, religious persecution. The word is religious, Lindley. Try to be better. I'm so- So he was escaping religious persecution and availed himself of the religious freedoms granted by the providence of William Penn. And he actually became a Philadelphia citizen in 1729. I'm only telling you guys this because this is where generational wealth comes from. John had two boys, Chris and the older one is John. And at some point, his original name became Americanized to Snively because his real name, I could not even type out, much less pronounce. So they became the Snivelys. And they also made the tradition of naming the firstborn son John. Uh, that, that was their tradition. So... They entered into the citrus business, and that coincided with the state's efforts to stabilize the citrus industry. In that same year, which was 1911, Florida introduced regulations to make it illegal to sell immature trees. Now, that new regulation, the statewide inspections, and thus more stabilizations, which would be actually a boon for large operations, but not great for smaller family farms. So once that was established, he was already the family was already on their way to being a bigger operation. So that's, I think, how they kind of closed out things for other acreages, if you know what I'm saying. Okay. Okay. I love this. This has no bearing on the story, but I found this in one of the books that I was reading. And again, it has nothing to do with Graham Parson, but I just wanted to tell the story. Now, he would rule his family with an iron fist, and he was famous for his method of how he would choose his business associates which would be like a salesman or a fruit buyer or whoever would come into the office, John would tell them to sit down and don't say a word. Uh, he would sit them on the couch and like he would stare at them for a while. He would work on some paperwork, look back at them, make a couple phone calls. And then after a while, he'd just say, I don't like you. Get out of my office. Or, hey, I like you. Let's do some business. And there wasn't any in between. <laughs> like he wouldn't actually talk to you. He would just vibe with you. Hey, everybody, sorry to cut in here, but we do need to take a short break for the fine folks who chose to sponsor this show. And we are back. All right. So his mother, Avis, she was born roughly 1919. And according to Graham's aunt Pauline, she was extremely attractive and very bright. The whole family was bright, but Graham's mother was spoiled as a child and comes from her own daughter, who is also named Avis. If you haven't Notice these families have a tradition of naming everyone after everyone else. Avis could do no wrong, and everybody did everything for her. So 
there's this great story that the chief of the fire department in Waycross, Georgia, will tell you anytime you ask about it. But a fire broke out at a country club in the middle of a New Year's Eve party. And so they called up the fire trucks and she jumped onto one of them and started blowing the siren and flashing the lights. And they told her that she'd have to stop. And she said, hell, I'll buy this damn thing. Nobody's going to tell me what I got to do. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'll just buy this fire truck if I want to blow the horn. She attended boarding schools in Virginia and Washington, D.C. before enrolling. The thing is, I have two different schools that she enrolled in. I'm going to go with the University of Alabama. Okay. There were two different schools that were listed. So I'm just going to confidently go forward saying that she went to the University of Alabama and she was just as smart as could be. She was actually incredibly intelligent. She made good grades. She she was never a problem in school, but if you ask her what she was going to do for a living, she would just laugh at you because she did not need a career. She's like, do you know who my family is? Do you know? You know? Do you want some orange juice? <laughs> After she came home from graduation, that's when she met Coondog. Uh, while he was stationed at Bartow Field near Winter Haven, he and several other pilots, including his buddy, Whiskey Jack, rented a Mediterranean-style mansion from an heiress to the Packard Automobile Fortune. Do you guys know what Packard is? Yeah. What is that? It was a car. Packard? Was it? Yeah. All right. They called the mansion the Purdy Place, and Avis and her girlfriend visited the palace before they heard it was full of crazy pilots. Avis and Coondog soon became inseparable. Well, I guess as inseparable as the military would allow. Avis was crazy about Coon Dog. In 1945, he was transferred to an airfield in Perry, which is south of Tallahassee, where he served as an intelligence officer instructor. Well, I don't know how to put this, but like, do you know somebody who's like super smart, but also really stupid at the same time? Yes. Okay. Well, he and Whiskey Jack decided to play chicken because they both wanted the same parking space. They get into their cars, they gun it. And you think that one of them's going to turn, and they don't. So Coondog drove his Buick right into the barrack, as in, like, went through the wall. And Whiskey Jack put his car right beside Coondog's, and they were both restricted to the base after that. Who would have who uh, ever expected any nefarious behavior out of someone named Whiskey Jack? Right? And Coondog and Whiskey Jack. Coondog and Whiskey Jack. And Whiskey Jack. That's the name of two people. The nicknames that... we've had in a while, by the way. Yes. Also, just the names that you go, yeah, they've got some sort of picture of them committing a crime. You know that. Mm -hmm. Now, during those times where he was restricted to the base, Avis would make the 200-mile drive up from Winter Haven to Perry. She would never miss a single weekend that he was confined to the base. Now, the thing is, when he was confined to the base, what they would do is they would go to see the on-base movies so there was like a movie house on base that they could actually just like go and enjoy. And occasionally they might sneak off base to go stay in a hotel, you know, when she was down there. You know what I'm saying? Mm hmm. And then just out of the blue one night and he called her up and said, will you marry me? He did it over the phone? Yeah. <laughs> I get I, that. That's the story that I've got. Okay, if, if, if anybody in her listening area knows the story about the proposal, please let me know. Because again, there's not a ton. There's not a whole heck of a lot. So I'm kind of parsing this together from the books that I have and the couple of specials that I've seen. He called up and just said, hey, marry me. And that story comes from his sister, Pauline. 
they set up a wedding for March 22nd, 1945, and this was a fancy affair. I mean, can you imagine? Because you know, imagine, yes. Who, who normally, like, number one, they're Southern. We don't do weddings or parties small <laughs> ever. No. And this was fancy. They had dinner parties, which took place in family members' homes, others in really nice restaurants. There were cocktail parties, and then dinners after those parties, and then parties after those parties. And then, I mean, let's just be honest. You're talking thirty million dollars in early part of the 1900s. That's like that's like Vanderbilt level wealth. Yeah, that's probably. crazy. Yeah, that's like Rockefeller wealth, probably. I mean, I bet that translates five hundred million dollars now. Probably. Probably. I'm just guessing. Yeah, I have no idea. It could be well, considering land that they own, like just the land that they own, is probably worth tons now. And then industrialize that with all of the orange trees like it's probably a billion dollar corporation now i can't imagine how they would lose money unless something happened like a hurricane but still you could bounce back from that you know okay so coon's parents and brother came down right before the wedding and the thing is coon never told his family about the snivelys so they were like Agape. They had never said anything about like the mansions or the orange grove or the fact that they were millionaires. So they got married at the Snidely Mansion and Avis was absolutely gorgeous. Uh, she was on the grand staircase with her gown trailing down. It was just exquisite. They were there were articles in newspapers because remember you know, newspapers were how you got your wedding news back in the day. But they were talking about the banks of calla lilies and the bridal gown being of heavy. Oh, and the, if you've ever, let me tell you something. If you've never read like a society page from a newspaper from the 19, like 20s or 30s, to, we're talking about, you know, cotillions and, you know, balls and weddings and stuff like that. Oh, it's delightful. <laughs> It's a great read. Oh my oh god! Oh my god! The de the detail they went into was just exquisite. I mean, we're talking about like like down to the flowers and the staircase and details on the dress and what the headdress looks like, how she fixed her hair. Like, if you read one of those society pages, they do not leave anything out because in, in the past, like they had to paint you a picture, and these were the pictures that people wanted. Like, there's a reason why lifestyles of rich and famous existed. There's a reason why keeping up with the Kardashian exists today because hey, like so I actually found an inflation calculator that goes back a ways. Huh? Thirty million dollars from converted from nineteen thirty to mm -hmm. now would come out to about five hundred twenty million. All right, go back even further, nineteen eleven. Because that was one of the dates we had. That's this it only the furthest that this thing will go back is nineteen thirteen. So Okay, we'll work on nineteen thirteen. We'll work with that. Uh, about $950 million. 30, 30 million would calculate to about 950, almost a bit, just shy of a billion. Yeah, so they were fine. Yep. All right. So again, this article that was pulled, they were talking about the her dress, which was like this beautiful ivory satin and the reception with the dining table of antique inlaid mahogany covered with Belgian linen and lace and the centered pieces and you know, and then the three-tiered wedding cake so it was fancy it was a fancy affair now uh, after the newlyweds moved from perry they had a couple months that they had to live in perry because he was still in the military also i think that the article 
did make note that he was in full uniform, which is dashing for those days, especially like post-World War II. You know, that that was amazing. He was actually honorably discharged from the Army Air Corps on August the 20th with the rank of major. He has oh, wow. spoken of a career. He had spoken of a career in civil engineering, but his new family had other plans. Da da da. Now there, there are two thoughts of school when it comes to why John sent his new son-in-law to Georgia. One of those says that they loved him, respected him, and gave him an assignment that would be easy to fulfill while living a pretty easy life with just enough work to make it look like he was actually working. So they put him in charge of a very easy job so that if investors wanted to see a box making factory at work, they'd send them down to George and say, look what he's doing. And then the investors would be really impressed. Now, the other one, the other school of thought was that they didn't like him very much and they gave him a job that pretty much nobody could screw up. And now the second one seems pretty unlikely because if her father didn't like him, he would kind of be the only person that felt that way. He was, Coondog was extremely well-respected, well thought of. And remember, he was at Pearl Harbor and fought in the Pacific Theater and got an honorable discharge and studied engineering. He was not a slob. So the second school of thought is kind of dismissed because he was a good dude. Now, from her father's perspective, he insisted a job was a mark of respect, but it must be said that when they made the move to Georgia, he was already a heavy drinker and had become a very early alcoholic. And that trait would also manifest in his son later on. So the very first night that they arrived in Waycross, Georgia, the hotel that was like the best place to stay was apparently full. But as it happened, the former movie theater manager from the Perry Air Force Base, of all people, was the one running the hotel. You guys remember I told you, like, when there was nothing to do, they would he and Avis would go see movies at the movie mm -hmm. theater movie on base, yeah. and she never missed a weekend. So he recognized him and managed to find them a room. They wound up moving into an apartment in the middle of the town, and then he went to work at the box plant. And then he and Avis actually began to build a house in Cherokee Heights, was this new subdivision in Georgia at the time. In fact, when they moved there, most of the side streets were still dirt, which is funny because that's kind of how our house was when the first family moved into it. Like, there, we were the end of the street. Now there is an entire subdivision behind us. So I understand where they were coming. Now, the two of them together were pretty good drinkers. And one of their family friends remembers that their wet bar that was in their living room was awe-inspiring. Not only that, but the Connors, which, is, remember, it's Coondog and Avis Connor, partied pretty hard and they were tight with their friends, and I'm about to tell you how tight they are. Now, as you know, Coondog was a natural-born hellraiser that literally put his car through the barracks on his station. So, what do you call that? Military? A military base? base? Yes. Oh, okay. He literally put his car through the barracks at his military base. So, yes, hellraiser. According to some people, their inner circle in Waycross was a little bit salacious. <laughs> Go a little bit further than enjoying a few cocktails. Have you guys ever heard of a shoe party? I have not. This is what I was trying to, to keep from you. T 
TJ, do you know what a shoe party is? Is it similar to like a towel party? What's a towel party? Well, tell me what a shoe party is and then we'll see. It's more like a key party. Okay. So a shoe party is you have a party and your wife takes off her shoe and throws it into a pile on the floor. A man picks up that shoe and then your wife leaves with the man who picked it up. Ah. Ah. So, you know, in 1947, shoe parties weren't exactly what I would call proper. (laughs) So this is just, this is just, what's the word? This is like a gigantic swinger party, kind of. Kind of. Now, there, there are people that think that's just a rumor and i'm yeah i'm kind of one of those people after reading as i sort of feel like hey um hey if you went to a shoe party would you automatically go for like whatever the biggest shoe was because you know feet size and now i'm gonna pick the cleanest shoe the cleanest shoe okay yeah what about you travis are you gonna go for the biggest uh, shoe like well like you said the, the ladies were picking the shoes correct no it doesn't sound that way the ladies put their shoe down Oh, ladies then, put their shoe down. And the men pick up the shoe. Oh, men pick up the shoe. Okay. Yes. I had it backwards. Um, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Shoes are gross. This guy just called yeah, record. They, yeah. He's no, not a nasty person. Yeah. No, Peter I'm not. Gross. Yeah, no. We saw a movie the other day called Talk To Me, which is a great film. But there is a scene where one of the characters has another character's foot in her mouth. And I'm like, nope, I'm out. Oh, yeah. I'm done. No, nope. gross. Nope. Like, the, is... what is the YouTube video? Is it Nom? Is yeah, with a feet on his face. Just, just sitting yeah. there and like all this stuff happens to him. But among those is like a foot goes in his mouth. Like, hell no. Feet yeah, are no. disgusting. Feet are gross. You have more sweat glands in your feet than you do in your armpits. That's alarming. I, even after I had a full pedicure, like callus removal, like buffing, like everything. And it soaks in like rose water for a half hour. If you ask me to put my foot in your mouth, like, as we're sitting in the salon, I'm leaving you, Will. <laughs> That's fair. I would never ask you to do that. I think feet are gross. Feet are disgusting. I hate Agreed. them. I hate them. Yeah. So, also gross. But did they... Um, and and real quick, it would have nothing to do with the towel party, then. A the towel party is what they did. Like, at the Citadel, VMI, I think, places like that, they would... Where they would take towels and they would put a couple of bars of soap in there and they'd beat you with them because it, that didn't leave any bruises. Oh, Jesus. Oh, no. Mean? Yeah. Yeah, they, they used to do that during, I think, Hell Week. They did it to the knobs for sure. Oh, my God. No. This is not. No. no they, usually, like, you'd be asleep, right? And, like, upperclassmen would bust up in your dorm or barracks or wherever and they would have a towel and they would have a couple of bars of soap kind of, like, tied up, tied up in it. And they would just beat the shit out of you with it because it didn't leave that. Supposedly that didn't leave bruises. Uh, yeah, no, two totally different kinds of parties. It, yeah. One doesn't involve you being beaten half to death with soap. Yep. Neither of those sounds like a, and then of course, you know, if you, um, there was one instance of a gentleman being hung up in a closet with a saber underneath his taters, but that's a whole other. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. We're going to get back to uh coon dog <laughs> and Avis. So. True story. Now, there's some people that thought that the shoe game rumor was true and said that there are a lot of them going on at then. And some people also said that Avis was having some affairs with people of her own, uh, you know, monetary stature. But now she wasn't kind of the person that just sit in an ivory tower and not do anything. But she would do civil work like joining the Community Concert Association and the Service League, which is kind of like Waycross's version of the Junior League. But she was strong-willed and not afraid to be confrontational, and she didn't hide her feelings about people, and 
more of that came out, the more she would drink. And she could shift from being really, really very, you know, sweet Southern charm lady, just the picture of a debutante, to a pain in the ass in a heartbeat. And she was not afraid to switch on you in public. Uh, less than a year after the Connors moved to Waycross, Avis began going back and forth between the towns of Waycross, which is where her and her husband lived, and the town of Winterhaven, which is where, you know, her family is. And most of the time, Coondog would stay in Waycross. And about this time, it came out that she was pregnant. And so on November 5th of 1946, Ingram Sissel Connor III was born in Winterhaven. Now, the reason why he was born in Winterhaven and not Waycross is because she wanted her own doctors and wanted her family to be near her during that time. Funny enough, there's not a lot of information about her pregnancy or what happened during that time. Like, it makes a time jump. So, huh. uh, five years after Graham was born, Avis gave birth to his sister, who is also named Avis, on April the 16th, 1951, and she would forever be known as Little Avis, and her mother became Big Avis. Friends and family would say after all of this that Graham <laughs> would. I don't know any woman who would want the nickname Big Anything. <laughs> Big Avis. Well, I mean. no, weren't the what were the Grey Gardens? Uh, the mother and the the daughter. It is Big Edie and Little Edie in Grey Gardens, and they they proudly called themselves that. So mm, that's I mean, again just not something many many women I know would ever adopt. Or take on. But well, if you're, if you're wondering if our story is Southern, we currently have Coon Dog and Big Avis and Little Avis and Graham. So that's the family <laughs> yep. right now. Which, by the way, guys, we are not knocking these names. We grew up with these names. These yep. these names are comfort food to us. They are All we need us. is like Bubba Earl and Cletus and like like it's a basically our family reunion. We got Whiskey Jack already. So we're we, already good. Got, we got Whiskey Jack and we got like Fat Mabel and whoever <laughs> he gave us. We're yeah. doing good. We're doing good. Friends and family would say that Graham was closer to his dad while little Avis was attached at the hip to her mother. Coondog and big Avis are remembered as affectionate parents and a loving couple. Even Graham had said in the past, most people visiting their house would even say that they had never seen a closer couple or that they wished their parents would express affection like they did. So all in all, they're just a great family. Also, I did mention this before, but I'll mention it now. Coondog was actually in the Boy Scouts, and he actually led the, Wake, the, the Waycross Cub Scouts and later a Boy Scout troop. And he enjoyed spending time with his kids, and he enjoyed spending time with his kids' friends. Like, he was just a big kid at heart. An attorney named Edmund Hedrick remembers that Graham was a good boy and his daddy was good with all the young kids. He was a scoutmaster and he would take them hunting and fishing. And Coon was good with the kids in the city. He would actually get cars that were just for the amusement of the kids. So he somehow managed to get his hands on a uh, top model T, a top, like a topless model T Ford. Okay. Like it didn't have was not a convertible, but I think the top was off of it. And he would drive around Graham and his friends like all through town. And that would be the only time that he would drive that. It was not for him. It was seriously just to amuse the kids. Like he loved taking care of the kids. And Koo taught Grant how to hunt and shoot and they'd go out together often. And the fact is work was not Coon Dog's life. That was secondary. His family came first. 
The other thing about the Connors is that they were willing to kind of, you know, what is it? Book the system, buck the system, buck, that's the word, buck the system when it came to living in a very prejudiced town. Because please remember, this is the 40s, 50s, and 60s in Georgia. Now, Liz Cohn was their housekeeper, and Christine's Dixon's, Christine Dixon, her younger sister was only 12 when she was hired as a nanny coom playmate to little Avis. Her brother Sammy served as the same role for Graham. Throughout her junior high, junior high and high school years, Lewis spent weeks with the Connors. She would play with, eat with, and sleep in the same room as little Avis, same for Graham. And now you got to remember at the time, she was a young black girl in Georgia working with an extremely rich family. And typically what the family would do is if you were working for them, you had your own little like separate area that you would eat or that you would live or that you would work like you weren't up front with the family. But that's not how the Connors were. If you were in the Connor home, whether you were family or you worked for them, you ate with them. You slept with them like you slept in the same room with them. You played with them. And that was the norm. And that's just not how it was in Georgia in the 50s and 60s. But the Connors protected their families. They protected their workers. If you worked for the Connors, you were protected and you were sheltered. Cohn described that the Connors were sweet people who allowed their black servants to sit down with the kids in the kitchen instead of making them go into a back room. And also they were extremely giving. They would give the kids birthday presents. They give the family Christmas presents. So they just genuinely were good people all around. And they loved giving presents to their kids. Graham had a ton of toys and gadgets and games. And in the backyard, he actually had a roller coaster. Like they built a roller coaster. So you would sit on like this wooden seat and it had wheels and it would go up and turn you around. And it would go about 40 or 50 feet. Like it wasn't, but like who's got a roller coaster in their backyard? No Um, one I know of. Michael Jackson? Yeah. I mean, yeah, Michael Jackson's about the only one I can think of. Yeah, and then there's some dude in, like, Tennessee that's got one, too, but he built him. But Graham would also have, like, state-of-the-art stuff that other kids would never have, like a Polaroid camera. And they also had the first television with a remote control and the first yard with an automatic sprinkler system. Oh, wow. Didn't the uh, early remote controls, they were just basically, like, tuning forks? <laughs> I, I just thought no. they were, like, Bibles, and you kind of just, like, no, no. punched it. Well, no, the the um the original ones were basically they emitted like a, a, a certain pitch and that they legitimately it was almost like a tuning fork to the point that like you could accidentally change the channels on them by like if your keys if you have like a big wad of keys and you pull it out of your pocket and it it hit just the right it hit just the right it. tone or pitch, it would like your your channel would, would just change. Huh. No, I've I, 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 I've had literal fever dreams. <laughs> That's the last time we <laughs> recorded, but I don't think I'm making that up. I, I'm going to trust you. I mean, what did grandma have? Because grandma never bought anything. Uh, no, you got up and changed it. You know, yeah, yeah, she had a, a she had a channel changer. Their names were Travis and Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yes. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. If anybody knows out there, post it on our Facebook page. We love this kind of stuff. Now, I'm going to talk directly to my brother. Me and you grew up in South Carolina, right there, bub? Uh, and did we did? And what kind of lesson would we take in gym class? What kind of lesson would we? Oh, no, sex ed. No. Hilt. <laughs> no. I was thinking square dancing. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and lots of stuff with parachutes. Yes. Because we had the, everybody throw the parachute up in the air and then somebody has to run across and make it through. Or then yep. they put all game, the, yeah. Yeah, or then they uh, put the balls in the parachute and then you had to like bounce them all out and then collect them again. That's what you call the rain day in the South, kids. Did you ever have to take square dance lessons? I actually did, yes. Did you? Yeah, I can't. It was, I mean, it was ages ago. I think it was like third or fourth grade, but yeah, they did it. Well, apparently this goes way, way back because these kids would actually go to dance lessons for eight weeks during the school year. They wouldn't learn so much as square dancing, but they would learn the jitterbug, slow dancing, and then all kinds of fancy dances that you're supposed to learn, like the foxtrot and the waltz and stuff like that. And they would even have card dancing. Do you know what that card is? Card dancing? No, I do card, not. Uh, card, uh, like C-A-R-D, card. Oh, no, I don't know what that is. So you have a little card and then you put every girl's name on it. And so like, you know, Nancy's first, Victoria's second, and Alice is third. And so you'd have your dance card and somebody would yell snowball and then you would no. change partners. So interesting. That's how they had fun in the South in the forties. Um, so Graham was also extremely intelligent growing up, uh, he was a really, really good student. He was already an excellent reader by the second grade, and he could just kind of cruise through classes without even trying. At one point in the fourth grade, uh, every day after lunch, the teacher would read a book out loud, and then eventually she just gave up and let Graham do it. So he actually read Robinson Crusoe to the whole class. Now, can I mention at this point, he's like eight or nine, like eight, eight or nine, not that, okay. not that old. Uh, and just out there in the, you know, in front of his classmates, reading Robinson Crusoe. Now, he learned to play piano at this time, at the age of nine. Speaking of being nine years old, uh, if it's absolutely possible to have a turning point in one's life at age nine, Graham would experience this on February 22nd, 1956. His friends Daphne and Diane Delano who were the 14-year-old daughters of Fred and Talia Delano, who are close friends of his parents, called up, you know, Big Avis, Coon Dog, and said, hey, we'd like to take Graham to the city auditorium in Waycross. And his parents allowed him to go. That night, Graham saw Elvis Presley. Hmm. Only a few weeks before Elvis's first hit single, Heartbreak Hotel, would go on to the number one spot on the pop, R&B, and country charts. He was actually opening for little Jimmy Dickens. Elvis? Wow. Yeah. Graham saw Elvis so early in his career that he had not yet broken open nationwide. And he would not appear on that famous Ed Sullivan show for another six months. So he saw him uber early in his career. After the concert, it was customary for the kids to like wait outside and get the autograph of the people that were performing. And so while other people were waiting for little Jimmy... He waited for Elvis, and Graham got his autograph, and his life was changed. Louise Cohen said that Graham was a sweet child as long as you let him be Elvis Presley. <laughs> Remember, Louise Cohen is the housekeeper. He loved Elvis, loved imitating him, playing the piano. Even as a little boy, one of his favorite things was to wait for that Ed Sullivan show, and Graham would crawl on the floor and just watch the show just wrapped. And then Elvis would come on and he would stand up and he would shake right along with Elvis. You know, Elvis would have his guitar, Graham had the piano and he just played along with him. He was an Elvis imitator, 100%. Graham came up with Elvis in his heart. 
Henry Clark remembers that Graham's room was decorated with record jackets, all of them Elvis. But Graham would do so much more than just imitate and admire. Uh, it has been said that Graham's fingers were really long and thin, kind of like he was just bred to play the piano. He took music lessons several times a week at about four o'clock, and he liked faster songs because normally when he played the piano, it seemed like everything was fast. He was also an extremely quick study with a good ear. He could hear a song on the radio or, uh, you know, somebody would play a record. And in a few minutes, he could sit down and imitate it so he could play by ear. One time, Graham came over to my house and we had a piano and nobody in the house knew how to play it. It was just furniture. My mother was in the kitchen and Graham said, I want you to listen to a song I've written. She walked into the living room with Graham and Graham sat down and said, I call it the Graham Boogie. And he started playing that thing and my mother sat down and listened to the whole song. He could not have been in more than the third or fourth grade at the time, said his friend Dickie Smith. Graham Parson had decided to become a musician and that is where we are going to leave off this week. Thoughts? So much like before he was even born. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it really is. But like to know where we're going, you have to know where he came from, because like the fact is he came from an extremely affluent and loving home. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that home did have problems like both of his parents are alcoholics and that is going to affect him later. There is going to be something that happens at a very young age that kind of really defines who he is. And it, that will be in the next episode. We will make it to that. He's nine years old now. And uh, I wanted to tell the story of his parents because it's just so interesting. Like, because you know where we're going, you want, I wanted to give the background of where he came from. Yeah. Um, and I thought and all of it was so interesting. <laughs> it, it is very interesting. It's not the background I had imagined, if you'd ask me. I mean, I, I didn't know much about his early life. Certainly didn't know much about his family. And I would not have guessed it is what it has turned out to be. Also interesting that an encounter with Elvis is what inspired him to pursue music, since that's also the life story of Tom Petty. Yeah. If you remember, very, a very yeah. brief meeting with Tom, with uh, Elvis when he was about 10, 11 years old, somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah, was uh, impetus for Tom Petty deciding he he wanted to pursue music. And I did look it up uh, a couple of things. The first remote control was actually not very surprisingly invented by Nikola Tesla. <laughs> not surprising at all. Poor guy never got the credit he deserved, dude. No, because he's, he's the most brilliant human being that ever walked the face of this earth. He invented one in 1898. Now, obviously, we didn't have televisions then, but he invented one that could control a range of mechanical contraptions. Also, he was played by David Bowie. In either the illusionist or the prestige, I can never get those straight. So that is a fun fact, I guess. Fun fact, I guess. So that that was that. So do with that what you will. And I guess by the time you know more sophisticated remotes came along, you could have used them to change the channel to or from a you know a performance by Manfred Mann's Earth Band. <laughs> TJ, bringing it back because we failed to do it in the last two episodes. Oh, we did. Oh, it's been dropped. <laughs> yeah. All right, Tom, take it away. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Tom McGuinness, and that was your federally mandated Manfred Man reference of the podcast. I hope you are satisfied. Every time, Tom. Every time. Absolutely. We salute you, Tom.
<laughs> Tom McGinnis, wherever you are, we love you. All right. So that's it. Will, did you have thoughts? Oh, I shared them already. I just thought like there was so much leading up to just him being born. And it's like, <laughs> again, he's someone I've like heard the name. He's been mentioned in previous episodes, but we don't really know much about him. So I'm, I'm looking forward to yeah. changing that. Yeah. We is not the royal we. We is this podcast. That's that's the thing. Right. I think there I, yes. there are people that uh, absolutely know him. David N. Meyer is absolutely one of them that does, and that's uh, Twenty Thousand Roads, along with the other book, Ben Fong Torres's Hickory Wind, The Life and Times of Graham Parsons. Like I said, those are my two main draws. Those are the two two main things I drew my information from. So uh, you know, if you Want to fill in some more of those gaps? Please check out those books. They're so far awesome. 20,000 Roads is uh, very thorough. So I, I do appreciate that. Um, all right. So with that, I guess we're going to close out. So here's our social stuff. Uh, if you think that we're great, go over to patreon.com at backslash rock and roll heaven. Throw us some money. Uh, we have some amazing tiers. We also have Thea's Not Yet Dead podcast that we've put up over there. She will have a new one coming out soon. You can check us out on X or Twitter or whatever, but we haven't posted in like, I, we're, I almost, it. <laughs> we're almost at the two-year mark, I think, from the last time we posted. Because also I lost the password and have no idea how to get it back. So, oh well. Anyway, Instagram, we do post on, and that's Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Our Facebook, Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Uh, thank you to our admin, Thea, for uh, helping us always post on there and keeping up with everything. She's amazing. We love her. Our website, still not saying it. You can check out our TikTok at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod, and you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. And please make sure to check out the other awesome Pantheon podcast at pantheonpodcast.com, including my other show that I help produce, which is Getting Real with John and Beth, the two stars of the real world season two we have a lot of amazing guests shooter jennings just got released i believe a week ago or so and then we also have julie peasy and she's awesome so go check those episodes out and uh if you love us and you think we're awesome and you don't want to you know like do any social media stuff or give us money that's totally fine do us a favor head over to apple podcasts and leave us a five-star review write a little review really hope that what mega monkey Whatever their name is, what's their oh, name? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, um, you know, it, that it's helpful uh, when you do that because I guess it helps with the algorithm and gets us in front of a few more people, and then it might counteract a, a review. Let's just theoretically say of a person named Shit Monkey sixty nine or something who, eh, by their own admission, listens for ten minutes and decides that's enough to you know write a one star review for. This is totally theoretical, of course. Um, <laughs> and quote <laughs> to saying things none of us have ever said and. Uh, Again, yep. again, 10 whole minutes and managed to discern in that time were not interesting, not funny, not clever, and don't know how to tell a story. So, yeah, just theoretically, it would balance out a review like that one. Also, I would like to say uh, something that this theoretical review might have said, mm -hmm. which was, by the way, it's extremely creepy to talk about teenagers as so hot. Uh, we have never done that. We would never do that unless we were talking about our younger selves when we were that age ourselves. Don't be gross. Don't be weird. We would never do that. Yeah, I people. think I, the only time I can ever remember anything even close to that would have been like an episode where we did talk about like our childhood high, or high school age teenagers crushes where yeah. maybe you would have said like, oh, new kids on the block. They were so hot. But you were like 12 and they were like 16. <laughs> yeah. Which I is think not you weird said, or creepy. I think um, you said Martika. And at the time, 
uh, you were 16 when Martika no, not even. came. No, I, the first time I saw her, I was like 12 or 13, and she was, yeah. I think, 17 or 18. Yeah. So uh, please note, uh, any new listeners, uh, we don't do that, and we find that disgusting. And uh, also, you listen to us for 10 minutes. At that point, we're not even done with our intro most of the time. <laughs> Who's dead, yeah. Yeah, like we're talking about who passed in the first 10 minutes, or we're talking about what we ate, or the fact that my brother had the flu. Like, the first 10 minutes is not great. And also, uh, the fact that we, quote-unquote, rehash information that's already out there. Do you think we can get new information? Yes, we're going to, right. She uh, Somehow, LD was able to discuss Graham Parsons' life with Graham Parsons, who's been dead for 50 years. I mean, of the three of us, I probably could do it, but... You're the closest yes, thing we've gone. I'm the closest thing that we could get. But yeah, like, remember, we guys... We attempt to pull from many different sources and combine yeah. that into something new. And yes, yeah, some of the, yes, most of the information has been published somewhere, but everybody hasn't read it or heard it. It would yeah. also never occur to me to... You know what? I mean, the thing is, I don't really care that much. <laughs> like, I, I don't actually don't. either. I, I really don't care that much. But I just don't understand the the mentality. If I've listened to something for ten minutes, I'm going to go shit all over them. Yeah. I, I don't know. That's just that's maybe I'm just not that that negative a person or something. I don't we, know. Are, but, we are. We are almost. But you know what? Do whatever you want. I don't get. I don't care. We are almost in our fifth year here, and you guys know uh, we hold our fans so dearly you guys are the reasons why we could have quit this like three years ago but we keep doing it because we guys we know that most of you guys like it we have a lot of listeners that we could not do this show without and we appreciate every single one of them so yes, if we you do. legitimately have a problem check the show notes and uh shoot email us an email us. email us give us a chat because we want to talk to you guys did you the know that thing... the, the, most of the time when i take lead on an episode i try to come up with some discussion you know discussion point kind of list debate something like that at the end of the episode that was an idea from a listener yeah not, we, not that they didn't specifically recommend that but they were like hey you know that somebody wrote a review that was like yeah, it's good information and stuff but i think it would be better if y'all did some more freeform talking and that's and i kind of thought of okay well here's a way to do that so that thank you to whoever you are you were constructive and we took that and did something with it yeah i mean we appreciate you guys and we never want to alienate anybody so legitimately, if you have an issue with anything that we say, shoot us an email before you leave a one-star review because that can actually like hurt us in the end. And we don't want to do that. Uh, we want to continue giving you guys uh, at base a decent show, uh, one that you keep coming back to and are entertained by. So uh, theoretically, theoretically, uh, this is all. This is all purely. This is all purely theoretical. It's not like we actually got a one-star review that was called oral torture. Oral. Oral. I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, Oral. Yeah. Which, by the anyway. way, is a clever name for a post that is hypothetical. Anyway. Yep. <laughs> All right, guys. I'm going to close out the show now. So, Will, do you have anything you'd like to say to the audience? No, just stay golden, pony boys and pony girls. See you on the next one. All right, TJ, do you have anything you'd like to say to the audience? Bye, everybody. All right, guys. Uh, thank you so much for checking this episode out of the podcast. Uh, check us out next week where we will pick up with uh, Graham Parsons' life at age nine. 
And just remember, guys, we love you so much. Thank you for tuning in. We appreciate it. We hope that you had a safe and wonderful holiday season. This year, we plan on bringing you so much awesome content. Uh, first of all, I want to thank our admin, Thea, for helping with all the social media and our editor, Michael DeVestia. Uh, you guys, we could not do the show without you, and we really appreciate it. So I'm going to close out the episode not with a Graham Parsons song, because here's the thing. He's nine. So what I'm going to close out the show is the artist that sort of solidified him becoming an artist. So what I'm going to close out with is Elvis Presley and the famous episode of the Ed Sullivan show that he appeared on. So I hope you guys enjoy. We'll see you next week. Have a wonderful time. Love you all. Good night. Here is Elvis
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.